put you on the near beer train. Okay. Well, I, uh, you know, I enjoy beers and, uh, sometimes a little bit too much, you know, and, uh, I'm pretty good at, uh, turning on the gas pedal. So sometimes it's good to dial it back and near beers helps out with that. What do you mean turn on the gas pedal? Well, you know, once you start having one and it leads to another one and can lead to another one. And nowadays with, uh, you know, the strict rules of drinking and driving, which is perfect. It should be that way. Um, kind of got to watch how much you're drinking, you know, like you can have two beers and be over. You don't know. You feel good. You feel like you're being responsible, but you can still be over. Oh, so you stopped it for safety. Partially. Yeah. You know, and like also, I don't know, saying an example for my kids. I don't want my kids to see me pound a bunch of beers at the lake all the time. So multiple reasons. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But then also you feel better the next day. So you're able oh. to take care of them. And it's funny. I don't know. Maybe it really should have been 30, but maybe like 35, the hangovers. They just like, and every year it just gets worse and worse. You don't think it can get worse, but it does. <laughs> so yeah, you're absolutely right. You can have like, I, if you, if you got the stomach for it, you could have 30 near beers. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you got the stomach for it and uh, you're not going to be hungover. So <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I just started drinking them and they used to taste like crap and some of them still taste like crap, but uh, there's a lot of beers out there now, near beers, that taste pretty good. Or, so. so what appeals to you about the near beer then? I don't think anyone could truthfully say there's a, there's a good taste in near beer that's as good as like a good IPA. <laughs> like IPAs, my, I love IPAs. <laughs> and like those are, those are just full of taste. So like I don't think there's a near beer out there that's close to it. Uh, the Guinness near beers are like they taste like a true guinness um a true guinness drinker would probably fully disagree with me yeah there's probably a lot of nuance to that though yeah if you're a true guinness drinker and you're doing it daily yeah or even weekly absolutely you're gonna taste that little hint of difference yeah yeah like i don't know i really like ipas so how many that's my downfall how many drinks would you normally crush when you are full brett mode then i don't know you know like if i'm not driving and i go to the pub I'll have like three or four pints, which is not crazy, but it's enough for I'm hungover now. Okay. All right. So yeah. you're not going too intense though. No, not anymore. No double digit. No, no. But it still hits you. That age oh, yeah. catches up to you. Yeah. It doesn't take much anymore. Yeah. So what were you saying the other day you had the most intense or whatever night of your life? Just a pretty busy call. Um, like not to get into exact specifics, cause I'm not sure if I totally can, uh, but we did a, a procedure to access an airway that's never really done. Wait, what's this procedure? <laughs> Wait, well you, oh, you can't even tell me that. I don't, I don't, I don't know how in depth I should get with calls, but I like, we did a surgical airway. A surgical airway is just, you know, it's something we practice all the time. They call it a halo event. So high Q, low currents. And it's essentially, it's a, it's a rescue event to access uh, airway. So if you're placing a breathing tube and you're not able to place that breathing tube and the patient is decompensating that's at the point that you would 
put a surgical airway. What's decompensating? Can't keep them oxygenated. So you use a device called a bag valve mask and you may assist the ventilations with that. Um, with that bag valve mask, you have a PEEP device that's on it, um, which helps um, keep them oxygenated. Uh, you use a nasal cannula underneath to give them high flow O2. So that's in the event that when you pull that bag mouth mask off and then you go to place a breathing tube that they don't deoxygenate. Oh, so you so, already have a tube in their nose when you have this bag. You have like, a, like prongs on, on their nose. The idea is to keep someone oxygenated during the procedure of putting in a breathing tube. And we take our time and make sure someone's fully oxygenated when we go to put that tube in. And occasionally and rarely does it happen where someone loses that oxygenation and you don't have any rescue devices that will keep them oxygenated that leads you to the point of putting in a surgical airway. How many surgical airways have you done in your lifetime? One. Yeah, that was the other day. What it doesn't, the- it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen all that often. How do you practice doing it? The service I work for uh, puts us through a pretty rigorous training program and requires every, every couple months that you practice a procedure. So they bring in pig tracheas, and then you go through procedure using a scalpel to... Um, place a surgical airway and you incorporate it into simulation scenarios. So they'll give you a case and a, the case may end up with a surgical airway. So then you go through the, the, the procedures to place one. Um, and then they have mannequins and then you can even verbally talk through one and, you know, mentally see yourself placing one. And it's just constantly practicing, practicing, practicing to make it muscle memory. So how much visualization are you doing to practice? Uh, it's always visualization. Yeah. You're always, you're always thinking about what you're doing when you're, when you're talking about it or. So it's in your mind exactly what's happening when you're explaining this to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because like, you don't really realize how much things become muscle memory until you go to do them. And you, especially at work sometimes when you're under a heavy stress load and it's very hard to think clearly but yet you can do the procedures perfectly under that stress load without thinking about it. It'd be similar to what pilots experience when they have uh, an engine on fire or an engine failure, something yeah. wrong with the plane. Or drag racer, the way they, something blows. Absolutely. They, they have a checklist and they train in the simulation to deal with this problem. And they train so much that when it actually occurs, they're going through all these steps without thinking about it. How are you guys applying the pressure during drilling? I guess one is they bring in actors and, you know, and these, these simulations that they run us through, they, they don't necessarily stop after 10 minutes. They keep going on for, you know, up to 20, 30 minutes. And you kind of just get sucked into it and your mind thinks it's almost real. So then you're bringing on that stress. Is it the same stress as a call? Not even remotely close. But it's more stress than just talking about over a tabletop sim or laughing and joking and trying to figure out how to deal with these problems. Oh, so when you're doing the drill, you're treating it as a real event. Absolutely. Every single time. Yeah. And that's how it actually transfers over then. Yeah. And you don't really even realize how fast it's, how it's transferring over until you end up in those situations. You know, we do this thing. Um, at Stars called uh, SimComp, and 
every year there's like a basin comp so you'll you'll get together with a buddy and they'll put multiple teams at the at the base through the simulation competition what it is is they'll come up with this crazy scenario so one year it was a prisoner from a penitentiary and he was dealing with this medical problem and right in the middle of the simulation he got out of his restraints and stopped the guard so now you have two patients and basically what they're doing is they're trying to elevate the stress and keep changing it another year it was i think it was a just a regular like cardiac problem the patient was experiencing and then it was a church group that came back from africa and they all had ebola and then they just kept people just kept coming in the room so you'd you'd think you'd be managing all the patients and then people just keep coming in and coming in Um, last year it was a mine accident so they brought you into a different room it was all blacked out and there was multiple patients and you just go ahead and deal with these patients but basically during these sim comps everyone's watching you you and your partner and everyone's judging you and you know whether how hard they're judging or not you feel like you're being judged and uh, then you got people walking around marking everything you're doing or not doing um, and then at the end of the day, that's why it's a competition. They gather all the points that you did and all the points the other teams did, and there's a winner, and everyone else is uh, not successful. And then from the base competition, it goes on to what's called uh, All-Stars. And at All-Stars, it's the winners from each base. So Stars has uh, three bases in Alberta. So there's Grand Prairie, Edmonton, and Calgary. And then Saskatchewan, there's two bases. There's Regina and Saskatoon. And then there's Winnipeg. So they'll take the winning teams from each base. And then they'll be put through competition. And then the winners from that go to a big conference down in the States. But the thing with the conference down in the States is I don't think we've had a team not place ever. So you're they're expected to, you know, you're, you're expected to place man there's some high level training going on absolutely only the six units that we have in canada for stars well i feel like uh we're pretty fortunate with the training that we're given so that when you run into those situations like the other week where it was you know extremely stressful you're doing a procedure that you never do um or have done um that you're prepared for it and you manage it calm and like a professional that you're how do you maintain your composure uh, through years and years of dealing with stressful situations, um, with training, uh, they give you certain coping mechanisms and, you know, you practice them during simulations, you practice them on other calls that may be mundane, um, but in the reality of it, they're stressful. You know, the majority of patients that we transport are on ventilators or on medications to support their blood pressure. Um, You're potentially putting in a breathing tube for them, um, which involves, you know, putting someone to sleep, paralyzing them. They've probably been in a traumatic accident. And then generally when someone's in a traumatic accident, they have extensive traumatic injuries, whether that be head injuries, facial injuries, chest injuries, extremity injuries that can ultimately be graphic. And that's almost on a regular basis, that's what we see. So when you're managing those calls and dealing with the pressure, you get used to it. And you're never going to be in a position 
in a role as a critical care paramedic, whether it be STARS or Saskatchewan Air Ambulance, um, where you're doing these advanced procedures if you don't have a big background as a first responder, if you don't have a big background as a, you know, working in a high call volume EMS service. Um, and the nurses we work for, because the team composure I work in, both at STARS and the other critical care retrieval services, Saskatchewan Air Ambulance, they work in a paramedic nurse team. So I'm not working with another paramedic. I'm working with a nurse. So the nurses I work with all have extensive backgrounds in ICU, in eMERGE. They've worked there for years. Most of them work at air ambulance. And then the paramedics, my fellow paramedics, uh, they've worked in, most of the guys I closely work with work in Saskatoon or have worked in Saskatoon for, you know, 20 years. They've, most people have worked at Saskatchewan Air Ambulance prior to coming to STARS. Uh, almost everyone's worked in eMERGE. There's at one time that we were putting paramedics into RUH or JPCH eMERGE to work in the recess rooms to assist the staff because the nursing staff was so low with experience because you can't put a brand new nurse into a trauma or a recess room to manage these high acuity patients. So they found a bridge by putting paramedics in there. And even at one point years and years and years ago, and I wasn't part of this, but some of my coworkers were, is they were putting paramedics into the ICU. And then on top of that, most of my other coworkers have a background in being educators as well. So there's an extensive background you have to come from. You have to have a, a laundry list of things you've done in the past in order just to be hired or get your resume in the door. So you're never going to put yourself in a position if you can't manage the stress in those previous jobs. Yeah, well, they seem to weed you out through repeated exposure because everybody has tons of experience and they would have already stopped or found their breaking point before they even got hired. Absolutely. Not everyone enjoys being exposed to that much stress because it's not just this. I think the, the thing that's unique is it's, it's not just the stress of the patient who's, we'll say, in some cases, actively trying to die on you. It's the stress, it's the environmental stresses because there's a lot of times uh, that we're not in a hospital or when you're working on an ambulance, you you could be in someone's house that has no power to it that's you know so you're in the middle of the night it's black all the windows are boarded up there's just full of people that have addiction problems we'll say um and you're just in an uncontrolled environment so and unpredictable and unpredictable you do your best to try to control it but in the reality of it you can't man so how do you roll with it then I think as a paramedic, that's actually one of the driving factors for wanting to be a paramedic is to work in an uncontrolled environment at all times of the day and night, and especially working in the city. Like I don't work in the city anymore. I work for stars, but working in the city, you get to go to all these different areas of the city that you never would otherwise. And you're dealing with all these people that you never would otherwise. And the beauty about being a paramedic is it doesn't matter who you're dealing with in society. Everyone gets treated the same. And you just have a drive to provide good care for everyone. You don't place judgment on anyone and you just 
you want to provide them with a high level of medical care that they need and they require. Sometimes it's hard though, because you'll go to a car accident, we'll say, that involves drinking and driving is quite a common one in Saskatchewan. I mean, we're the leading province for intoxicated drivers and you know, the, the person that wasn't doing anything wrong or the family that wasn't doing anything wrong, um, they were struck by someone that's intoxicated on whether substance that may be, but the family's killed. And now it's your job to provide an unbiased level of care to the person that killed them because they're intoxicated. So you have to be able to get past that. And you do, you don't, you try not to get sucked into the cause of the accident. You, you help them. So you stay pretty facts based then when you arrive on the scene. Yes. How do you handle that heavy load? What do you do to keep yourself going? Oh man, <laughs> multiple factors. Uh, that's how I met you. <laughs> I, I went to the gym and you choked me out for an hour. Hey, let's clarify that one. Strangle. Strangled. Right. At the gym. No, I, man, that's such a good question because I feel... Uh, it's so important. Like, uh, I'm really lucky. Um, I've got a strong family background. My, I've been with my wife forever. Um, and she's really, really understanding, um, and supportive of me. So she knows when there's something not right. She'll know when there's something not right before I even know it. And she is there to make sure that I, um, I'm, I may need a shift off here. I mean, need you know, it's, you just, it's, it's really, really important to detach yourself from work sometimes. Physical fitness is another key component to managing stress. I'm on a kettlebell program right now. <laughs> I was just talking to my boss about this, actually. So I'm on a kettlebell program because I started, this is a long story, I started working out at home and used kettlebells. Anyways, I call my black pills and... Uh, you can tell if like, I can always tell if I haven't been actively working out enough because it builds up. I started doing jujitsu to, you know, have, uh, not only for physical benefits, there's, there's multiple reasons why I took it up, but it's actually to try to detach myself from work in the sense that most paramedics, cops, firefighters, they all hang out together and nurses. And there's a reason to that. You know, everyone's working shift work. You're all exposed to the same thing. Uh, you bond over that. And then you go for beers and hang out after work. That's not always positive in the sense that usually when you're hanging out together, you end up talking about work. So um, trying to, you know, grow from that. You're trying to get to a different planet because you're always on that EMS yeah. trauma Sometimes planet. Sometimes it's, uh, it's definitely good to escape that. And then... You know, this was taboo for a long time, and in a sense, it still is, um, which is really too bad. But uh, it's talking to a professional. I talk to a professional. Wait, what's uh, taboo? You know, like talking to a counselor, a psychologist. Uh, it's getting better in the pre-hospital industry, but there's still, I think, a little bit of stigma to it, which is unfortunate. I think... A lot of paramedics see it as weak talking to a professional about your problems or admitting maybe that you have problems. But when you 
have a lifetime of trauma. I don't know how you can't have lasting effects from that. That's impossible. So I met a counselor. I, I talked to him regularly. Even when I don't need to talk to him, I talk to him. Uh, because it's one thing to go out and have a debrief with your buddies that you work with. And, you know, they, they and that was a standard practice for as long as I've ever been in EMS is you go out with your coworkers after work, you, you have a beer with them, you, you talk about the call you went on. And that's fine. I think that's still important. But it's also important to have a professional to talk to uh, that knows what they're talking about. Because, hey man, you can bring me your car and I could tell you what I think's <laughs> wrong with it. <laughs> But I don't know how to change my oil. So it's probably better for you to take your car to a mechanic that's a professional that knows how to fix it. And I kind of relate the same way. You know, and for the longest time, it was kind of taboo to talk to people about things because they haven't experienced that call or similar call or been under that type of pressure. So you just wouldn't bring it up with anyone else. That's why you don't talk to a professional counselor, a psychologist, because they've never experienced that. But I don't, I don't think that's right. I think in order to maintain a healthy mental state and be healthy in general, you got to talk to a professional. You got to have a good exercise program. You got to, you know, and not everyone's as fortunate, but I feel fortunate I got to get backing with my family and my wife. She's understandable. Not all wives are, or husbands. The other thing too is, is that really believing in what you're doing. I love being a paramedic. I love the fact that I get to go out there and help people. I work for a great employer. I got nothing but positive things to say about them. But I think if you didn't have the same beliefs and you really weren't happy in your work environment and then you're going out and you are being put under this huge stress that has lasting effects, I think it leads to more negative effects than it necessarily does when you really believe in what you're doing. And it sounds funny because like, oh, you, you rescue people, we'll say, or, you know, you save their lives potentially. But when it's a day-to-day -day thing, it's, you, you really got to be happy with where you're at. If you're not happy, you're going to have a negative outcome. When did you figure out to actually get help? Um, there was an event at my work where a coworker ended up taking his own life. Um, and that... That event was uh, it was pretty heavy, and it was through that that I ended up going getting help, going and seeing a counselor. And I think the thing it's easy to say you should go talk to someone because you know go go talk to a professional because it took me a number of meetings to find the right guy. It's like dating. You date your counselors because uh, they're not all going to work. And that's fine. But you're going to find one that does work, and it's all about being persistent. So when that event happened, it uh, I was at a state where I needed to go see someone, and it was the best thing I ever did because I saw him for that event. But now I see him all the time for, you know, things that happen at work. Life stresses, it's not just about being at work, it's about life stresses. How did you know he was the one? I think it's because uh, he was easy to talk to. 
uh, the feedback he was giving me uh, made sense. Essentially, what I do when I go see him is I just talk. And he just lets me talk, non-biased. That's all I do. And uh, it felt right, so I just kept going back. So you felt in your gut that this was a good fit then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's like you date your uh, counselors, <laughs> and there's some good dates and there's some bad dates. But when you find that good date, you just keep going. It, yeah, sounds, yeah. it sounds funny, but it's kind of true. No, I think it is. Yeah. But that's the same with friends, though. And totally, kind man. of every interaction, yeah. you're going to decide whether you're going to hang out with them again, more often, less yeah. frequently, not at all. Yeah. Well, it's the same like you asked me about in your beers, and I don't bring this up too much, but sometimes it's good not to be drinking too much. The only thing that comes from alcohol is bad things, man. I see it all the time at work. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy my beers. <laughs> but I also see the outcome if you get sucked into a hole of having too many of them. And when you're experiencing stress in your life, the easiest thing to turn to is alcohol. And the worst thing you can turn to is alcohol because it's not going to improve anything. It's only going to make things worse. But you don't necessarily see that. What's the path of least resistance? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Hey, we're going back to those sim comps. Yeah. That first scenario <laughs> where... You're helping the guy in the penitentiary. One of the people that are on your team get stabbed. What were some of the reactions you saw during the sim? Well, it's funny. It's it's really funny because like this goes back to like stress management because I was just talking to, to a buddy about this. I feel like sim comp, and not everyone agrees with this, but I feel like sim comp is the only other event out there that uh, we do in training that actually brings on a high level of stress. Because one during that sim, you were dealing with a patient that had a medical problem and um, they didn't want help. They're being difficult. And, you know, at the time, I'm just like, oh, my God, is this a communication sim? Are, are we being tested on talking? What's going on here? And then uh, when they reached over and stabbed the guard in the neck, what they did to facilitate that was used a blood pack and they slapped their their neck with it so all of a sudden there's and you don't really see it coming at all and you don't see the blood pack but all you see is blood like pouring out of this guy's neck which makes it go real real in your head real fast and uh the outcome of that was doing a surgical airway so it's funny because during that, during that event, so he got stabbed in the neck, falls, to, falls into me, I'm standing, and we all lower him to the ground, and I grabbed, it, it felt so real, I grabbed one of the, you know, the nurses that was in the room, who's, you know, an actor, and I put her hand, her fingers into the, where the stab wound was, and in my mind, I saw a stab wound. There wasn't one there, but there was a lot of blood, fake blood, Halloween blood. But in my mind, it was actually happened. So I grabbed her fingers and I jammed them into the neck, thinking that I was, you know, attempting to stop the bleeding. And uh, what I ended up doing was giving the guy a bruise on his neck because <laughs> I, you know, he, he put so much pressure on it because he got to stop the bleeding. 
And then during the sim, after you do that, then they bring out a pig trachea and you get timed on how fast you can get that crake in or the surgical airway. But in your mind, it's all happening for real. And so it's like your mind's the simulator. They just have to facilitate you to get to that spot where it's real. That's some self-hypnosis stuff then. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then like afterwards, you know, like everyone takes a group picture after it's all over and everyone's ha laughing and smiling, but like, man, you are, uh, you can tell you, you, you're on edge a little bit. Like, huh. Well, it's gotta be different to switch gears so quickly. Yeah. Well, and it's like during that, during that one competition, you know, like everything's laid back. You're just talking to someone. And the next thing you know, you know, uh, the guard gets stabbed in the neck and it's just like, bang, it's go time. You're on. You're on. So what's going on with the offender? What'd you guys have to do? Uh, I think he got restrained. I can't remember because I was busy with the guy who got stabbed in the Somebody neck. Somebody else was tapped. Nah, to, to be honest with you, I wasn't, uh, I didn't, I guess my situational awareness was off and I was hyper focused and, uh, who knows, maybe, uh, he was coming after me. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Luckily the sim con, well, that was a couple years it ago. It is funny then. because like I, I did some training in Australia and, uh, that, so, uh, so the training I did in Australia was the service similar to STARS. It's called Sydney Hems. And they run a physician paramedic team, not a, not a nurse paramedic team. And the sim is, is a guy, a woman's crossing the street and gets hit by a bus and is trapped underneath the bus. Like her, her legs are stuck under the bus. Um, and so the team has to, like the responding team has to do this big run with all their equipment. So they walk into the sim with an elevated heart rate, short of breath. Um, they get exerted um, to build the stress. And so they, they get there, the woman's in cardiac arrest. It's a They do quite a few things uh, more advanced than what we do because they work with a physician. So uh, the woman's in cardiac arrest, she's pregnant, so they have to do a cesarean and get the baby out to save the baby. And while they're doing this, they're managing mom, the bus driver gets out and he, he has a, he has a big heart attack, um, in the whole, this whole procedure. So then they have to manage him and he ends up going into cardiac arrest. So it's, it's like, in a, it's a crazy scenario, the, but the whole idea is a, to build the stress. How are they going to react to it? But the funniest thing is um, they have someone dress up in one of those T-Rex costumes. Like, you know, those big, like yeah. those big Halloween T-Rex. Yeah. 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 Like in Dundurn, they had the record, record T-Rexes. Yeah. Yeah. So they have someone dress up in this T-Rex costume and he goes strolling through this scene and like stops and looks like he, it's not like he runs through, like he just strolls through. And, uh, it's video, it's, it's all recorded. And so they do the sim and afterwards they go into a big debrief. So, you know, get some really good learning points. And then they go, so did you see the T-Rex? And they're like, what T-Rex? And they show them the video and they're like, today was a T-Rex. Tomorrow could be a semi. You gotta be, you know, keep your eyes open for everything that's going around you. You have to have good situational awareness. And it's, it's, it's funny because people get so sucked into these sims. 
the stress level is fairly high in them. That's why they get sucked into it. In their mind, it's real. So yeah. they're going through these procedures and they're doing, they're managing these scenes under as much real-time stress as you can inflict on someone without actually being on a real scene um, that there was a guy with a T-Rex costume that no one saw. <laughs> well, you're looking through that paper towel roll. You don't know what's going on right yeah, now. And you, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so what techniques do they employ to keep you situationally aware? Well, I mean, there's the standard ones. Um, you know, like they call it combat breathing or box breathing. Essentially, I don't know if you ever go into a call and you're like, I'm going to combat breathe. I think it's more like <laughs> I need to take some deep breaths. I need to slow my breathing down and I need to regroup and then I can continue. Or when you're prepping, you know, you're, you're going to um, a scene that might be pretty full on, you know, whether it be an accident with multiple patients or whatever it may be, a kid. Generally, anything that involves kids brings extra stress. So when you're responding to these calls, it's another time that you have to, you know, you take a self-pause and you, you take some deep breaths and you just breathe through it. Another thing about responding to calls and prior to doing procedures is that you have to remember that you've been trained to do this. You've been put through, in my opinion, and I haven't been through all the programs in Canada, but I've had the opportunity to go through high level of training. I've been prepped to manage this. I'm ready to manage this. I'm trained to do this. So going in with confidence in yourself and your abilities and your knowledge. You got a lot of self-trust there then. Yeah, but it's easy to forget, honestly. So you just have, you always have to remind yourself of that. What? How long have you been doing this for? So I became a paramedic in 2003. <laughs> I know, man. Pretty much when there was real dinosaurs walking around scenes. <laughs> Not fake ones. I never got eaten though. So. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm as old as a rock. <laughs> yeah, a long time. And prior to doing that, I was uh, working as a ski patroller, pro patroller. So, yeah. So, all right. How did you transition from ski patrol to paramedic? When I was in high school, I grew up in BC. I was in search and rescue. And I, I knew at that point I wanted to do something in the first responder field. I, I didn't have a drive to become a police officer. Um, but I knew it was either going to be, you know, going to a fire academy and then becoming a firefighter um, or becoming a paramedic. And like most young people, I didn't really know much about the professions. Uh, but I knew enough that if I went to a car accident, what did I want to do? Did I want to be tearing the car apart? Or did I want to be helping the people that were trapped inside? And I wanted to help the people that were trapped inside. That was my drive. So following a, a career into EMS seemed to be the right fit. Not only that, but I got experience in search and rescue helping people and I enjoyed it as much as you can. I mean, like it's hard, it's hard work, but it's gratifying. And I, I really like the feeling of being able to help someone. What's the most difficult part about being search and rescue? The hardest part about search and rescue is everything that I was a part of, which was a volunteer team that was really casual. Like most search and rescue teams are. They're all volunteer. I guess the hardest part for me 
would have been the required training because what you're doing in search and rescue is not only going and finding someone, but you're going through some of the most difficult train there is. That's usually where people get hurt. In order to access that train and get people out requires an extensive knowledge of train management, of rope access and rescue, and then having the first aid background to help someone in that situation. So it's it's just constantly training, 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 training. How often will you be training? Uh, I think we were doing, this was a long time ago. (laughs) Uh, I think we were doing once a week. Yeah, is what we average for once every second week. So not a lot of time for high expectations. And in the same sentence, it's not like we're doing a lot of call-outs either. So it's easy to learn how to manage stress when you're in those stressful situations on a regular basis. But when you don't do it that much, it's, you know, like you always got to give first responders, as in the guys that, are, that volunteer their time in these small communities, to go out and then whether that be in an ambulance or in uh, the fire department, you gotta give them credit because they don't do it every day. And that's tricky is learning how to manage that stress without being in those calls on a regular basis. You know, like you feel like you're doing a lot of training, but it's grand scheme of things when you're doing it part-time voluntarily, you don't always get the training that's required, but you do the best you can with what you have. Yeah, but you also don't get to expose the weaknesses as frequently to correct them. Absolutely. You can't uh, can't get better unless you're doing it all the time. It's like anything in life. Yeah. So, so it was kind of the sporadic nature that was difficult for you then. Yeah. But I was pretty young too, so that's pretty driven. I didn't, I was pretty keen to learn. It's not that I found it super challenging. Looking back on it, being older, yeah, absolutely. But you always, when you're young, you don't think about the obvious. <laughs> you don't even worry about it. <laughs> so what'd you take from being search and rescue? Uh, I mean, I got a career out of it. I got a career in EMS. So I went from search and rescue into um, ski patrol. But I knew I wanted to be a paramedic. And the reason I went and became a ski patroller is I wanted to have some fun when I graduated high school. You know, I felt that, and I do feel that, working as a ski patroller especially like a pro patroller where you're doing it every single day gives you a great experience and background in dealing with people that suffer serious traumatic injuries and then learning how to extricate them off the hill to the bottom, skim from point A to point B where the ambulance will be hopefully waiting. Or So what's the primary role of ski patrol? Well, they do a few different functions. I guess a, the easiest one to say is snow safety. So your role in ski patrol is to make sure that there's no avalanche risk. So a lot of times they'll be going up there early, early in the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning to, if there's any areas that will potentially cause an avalanche um, onto the resort itself or just outside of the resort where people may be skiing where they're not supposed to be. So you may be starting avalanches with explosives, um, testing the snow, um, and then just assessing those situations. How do you test the snow? Well, like ski cutting. uh, Ski what? Like you you are skiing along the edge of the run, applying pressure without going down the run to see if it will potentially start an avalanche. You're digging pits and doing snow studies. Um, 
to see where the avalanche danger is. And then I was ski patrolling in the Rockies and uh, there's really good reporting throughout the whole Rockies with avalanche conditions. So there's that aspect to it. And it's, you know, that's pretty heavy on itself. But then you, you're in charge of making sure that the resort's safe. So all those fences that you see being put up, all those bags or, you know, like everything that's wrapped around the towers, it's your job, signs. It's your job to make sure that the runs are marked appropriately, the fences are up and functional. And then on top of that, then you have the responsibility of managing people when they get hurt. And occasionally you do like a search and rescue response if if uh, someone's missing. I'd say those three things are the, are the most important. Snow safety, making sure that there's no avalanche hazards, making sure the runs are marked and ropes are up, marking where the resorts are, you know, what's in limits and what's out, out of limits. So if someone doesn't end up either potentially getting an avalanche or, or getting lost is a big one off the resort. Um, and then, you know, the, the first aid side of it or the, the emergency response side of it. And that's heavy in itself. You, you know, you're going to people that wipe out on a run that's really icy and the runs are defined by trees. Well, those people will now slide into the trees and you can, you know, it's like a bad car accident. <laughs> but yes, now you got to get them out. out. So I guess in a sense, there's like a rope rescue portion to it to extricate people. What's a sticky situation you got into on ski patrol? Oh, usually trees. So like someone goes into trees and it's, it's managing them because they usually suffer some pretty serious traumatic injuries, whether that be fractures and the legs, um, but more so head, uh, you know, like it doesn't take much to get a head injury at all. So you go to someone that is unconscious and they've broken a leg and they're 50 meters will just randomly say into the trees. Well, now you got to get them out safely. So how do you do that? What are the steps? Well, you, you go in, you find the person first of all, cause they're not, you know, if someone's in the trees. It's not just completely obvious. Once you find the person, then you manage their injuries and you call for more equipment. So if you need advanced equipment to, to provide care for them, then you get brought down. If you need ropes uh, to extricate them out of the trees, you get that brought down. If you need extra manpower, you call for it and it's, it's brought to you. You start to think long-term, how are we going to get this person to the hospital? Is Are they pretty much fine? They just need help getting out of the trees or are they really hurt where they will require an ambulance or worst case scenario, um, which is funny because tides have turned, but do they need a helicopter? So what do you mean tides have turned? Well, now that I work in a helicopter, oh. <laughs> you're the yeah, guy now. I'm the guy in the helicopter. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a circle of life. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. You got to see all aspects of it then. So absolutely. you can understand was, the roles of what honestly, you were going through. It was a, it was a great job. I was young at the time. Um, hey, you're still young. You're I, still young. I'm Come still on. young. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, it was an awesome job. I I look back really fondly of it, and I hope my kids get to experience the joys of working on a ski hill. <laughs> You're hoping they follow in your footsteps. Yeah, I you know like it's just fun, and it's a party, right? Amen. 
Like, I feel pretty fortunate. I met my wife there. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We worked at the same ski hill. She wasn't ski patrolling. She was working at the ticket office, but um, we met in 2001 in Nikiska. How did it start? Well, she will say that uh, we, we met in the office when I came in to photocopy some papers. But I remember it at the staff party. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where we met. <laughs> Some beers involved. It's good. Yeah. And you've been with her since 2001. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, man. Well, dude, you got to keep her then. That's, that's awesome. I feel super fortunate that I've found someone that I've been in a long-term relationship with and, and we're, and, you know, you're happy and I don't think that's that common anymore. You know, like I've got a few buddies who are in relationships that long, but uh, we've just had so many experiences together. Yeah. So I feel super fortunate. But you trust and, her a lot because you let her self-regulate you sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And that's why she knows me so well, you know? And like the other call the other day, she's like, you need to take a shift off. And I listened to her. She knows. When did you start listening to her when she told you that? Well, she'll say that I don't listen to her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just like as you mature and you, you just realize that um, there's certain people in your life that will know when you're off. And if they know you're off and they're making a comment, you listen to them. Um, so when she says that I, I probably should take a pause, I'll listen to her. When did you figure that out? When should I listen to her? Yeah, because I'm sure it didn't happen I know, overnight. No, it did happen. Like, honestly, uh, like... Probably for everything kind of happened after my friend um, um, came into work and took his life, uh, where I started focusing more on my mental health and managing it appropriately. And like I said, I, you know, I started seeing a counselor, slow down on the drinking, making sure I was physically active, um, and listening to my wife. You know, they always say. And I'm no expert by any means, but I think the old mentality of you, you have a stressful event in your life. You take that and you put that in the bookshelf or you, you take that stressful event and you put it in the hole and then move on. It's an analogy of like, just put it away, forget about it, get back in the truck, do the next call. Well, that uh, hole's going to eventually fill up. And once it does, there's going to be serious consequences. And that's why in the first responder world, whether that be EMS, fire, or police, um, I think there's a lot of mental health. It's a mental health crisis. Because if you don't take responsibility for your own mental well-being, you're just going to get sick. So you have to find those coping mechanisms because people aren't going to find it for you. Yeah, and to know it's all right for you to look for help. Absolutely. And yeah. be vulnerable. Absolutely. Talking to, uh, well, I'll drop his name. I'll talking to Elliot. He's awesome. Um, so I can go in there, have a non-judgmental BS session in the sense that I just tell him the way I'm feeling. Um, he doesn't judge me. And gives me some good feedback sometimes you know if i'm being hard on myself he reminds me not to and i 
listen to them. Uh, then you got, I'm fortunate. I work with a bunch of really good coworkers. I got a good support group of friends who are all in the same profession. So I still go out with them and I still meet up with them and talk about it. Just like I always have, you know, my wife. And the exercise, the exercise is really important. You you know, you're, that's why, partially why I started taking up jujitsu. Got to stay healthy for the kids and the family. And, and everyone else. And yeah, because yeah. you, you got to take care yeah, of yourself You have too. a long career if uh, you let all that stuff build up. Yeah. How was it in the beginning when you first started? Oh, um, I mean, like, <laughs> it was all those bad coping mechanisms, man. It was like, uh, you go out, you have a few beers after a rough day, you meet up with your buddies to, you know, talk about those calls and you're all, you know, everyone's drinking. And then uh, just putting it in the hole and then moving on, getting back on the truck, doing the next call. Don't worry about it. You know, building up a mental resilience in the wrong sense. There is a, there's a portion to it that you still need to do, but I think you build up this armor that you say to yourself that nothing, nothing will get to me. You know, like I'm strong enough that nothing will affect me. And just you say that to yourself enough, you end up, leaving it so those are all the kind of the wrong things to do i think there's a portion though like if you know like if you're a first responder what are you signing up for you're signing up to deal with people's worst days and their worst life and go into the most stressful situations that's the job and that's what people do understand what they're getting into so you do have to have some mental resilience I, I still think there needs to be a little bit of a, a shield that you, you know, like you're kind of built to do this, but you have to also have those proper coping mechanisms. You can't just yeah. you know, put everything in the hole and let it overflow. Yeah. What would you give your past self as advice knowing what you know now? I think, uh, honestly, man, finding someone to talk to was a game changer. And that was really taboo for a long time and to a point still is, but that was, that's probably been the game changer. Reminding yourself how important exercise is. I don't exercise to, uh, I don't even call it exercise. Like I train, I train my mind, I train my body. It's about being disciplined. And so if going out to the garage and shutting my mind off, um, and pushing a bunch of weight out and then getting a massive dopamine release because of, you know, you're yeah. working out. Um, hey, that's, uh, that's important. And when you have an overbearing level of stress, it can be easy to forget all the, those things like working out though too is like, I share more with my wife now than I ever did before, but I created a big division between work and my home life. I didn't want the two to mix. I never would tell my wife anything before, but now if I go on a bad call, I tell her about it. I share it with her. So she knows why I'm off and she also gives me more leeway, we'll say. But if I didn't share what's going on in my life, she wouldn't have a clue. That's not, that's not really fair. But originally I thought that I kept work at work and my home life separate from what was happening at work. And that was a coping mechanism, which isn't necessarily true. 
is to an extent, but to the people you're closest with, like your wife. So you used to keep it compartmentalized a lot. Uh, there are two different things. I, I never crossed them. <gasps> Ever. So... I learned a lot talking to a professional. <laughs> so, you know, kind of my his, buddy's <laughs> ever said that. It's kind of his job, yeah, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He taught me a lot. <laughs> so Which I, has been also really healthy for the marriage, you know? like Communication, yeah. Communication. <laughs> they say that's good. Yeah, it's huge, yeah. man. So, that's one of the pillars of a good relationship. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, you know, mental well-being, mental health. Management of stress has been an ongoing evolution in my life and lots of education, just trying to get better. Yeah. So I can do this for a lot longer. Well, you want to be in this for a longer haul then. Oh, yeah. I, I hope to retire one day in the position I am. I'm super happy, man. I feel super fortunate. I, I love my job. Um, I really like the company I work for and I don't ever want to change that. What's the best part about it? I mean, the simple answer? Uh, well, there's two. So I, if I wasn't working at Stars, I'd say, man, I get to drive around an ambulance every day and like, you know, go have coffee and like the city's my office. And then now I, I feel super fortunate. I, I fly around in a helicopter. Um, I only go on calls where someone is critically ill. I don't get stuck in the hallways like you hear about in the news and where paramedics nowadays, man, they're, they go on a call and they're stuck in the hallway for hours. And I can't imagine dealing with that on a regular basis. I think that'd be really hard. And those guys deserve a lot of credit for doing that because what people don't realize is that when they're stuck in the hallway, the calls are building up in the queue. So they'll clear the hospital after being there for a couple hours. And I'm sure, I'm sure that's a short stint. They'll clear the hospital and they'll just go straight to another call. And then they'll bring that patient to the hospital and be stuck in the hallway again. And then they're going on these calls where there's delayed responses because there's not enough ambulances and everyone's in the hospital. And then you have unhappy patients and their families because they've waited so long to get an ambulance. I don't have to deal with that. I got cushy. I cruise around a helicopter. I deal with patients that are critically ill. I get the best training that I feel that you can have uh, besides maybe working at Saskatchewan Air Ambulance, which is the other critical care retrieval service. The difference between STARS and, and Air Ambulance essentially is one's a plane. They can go way up north. They can cover the whole province and they can go out of the province. And they really specialize in managing these really sick ICU patients that should never leave a hospital. They take them out of the hospital and they take them to Edmonton, Calgary, wherever they need to go. It is like, it's really impressive what they do. And then for us, we, we have a helicopter. Our niche, we'll say, is scene response. So whether that be like a car accident on the highway, a farming accident, an assault, we'll fly out to those locations, we'll pick up the patients, we'll stabilize them, and then we fly into uh, what we call tertiary care or Saskatoon, one of the bigger centers. So I feel fortunate, man. I, it's, it's a great job. Yeah, you fully appreciate what you have now, though. Absolutely, yeah. How is that transition from being on land to being in the air? So when you're on ground ambulance, you are... They work hard, really, really hard. But not all the patients 
necessarily really require their services. You know, like there's a there's a large portion population of uh, mental health needs in Saskatoon and any city, really throughout the whole province and country. Um, that also comes with addiction problems, and they're doing back to back calls. You're always busy. You're always on the go. Always driving around doing something. When I transferred out of that and I went to Stars, it uh, it was more. Sometimes you're sitting around all day, you're not doing anything until five thirty, and then you're going to head on with five people, or whatever the case may be. Someone having a big heart attack or stroke or you know, like you you don't do anything all day and then it goes full tilt. So, or, you know, like it's a helicopter and sometimes we get weathered out, you know, you just, there's weather, you can't fly a helicopter in because if the, you know, weather's bad, the helicopter drops out of the sky. If it gets icy on the blades, you know, like it's just, there's strict safety rules for what our pilots can fly in and what they can't. And it's great. It keeps me healthy. Uh, but that also brings days where we just can't fly. So you can't necessarily do anything. There's always a chance that maybe you can respond by ground. You can, you know, request a ground ambulance to come pick you up. The chance of that happening with how busy all the EMS services nowadays are is pretty slim. So you're going one side from going nonstop to the other side of like not doing anything and then it being super, you know, full tilt. Kind of on a snap of the fingers. It's like the call the other day where we replaced the surgical airway. That call happened at 3.30 in the morning. So, like, you don't, we didn't do anything all shift. And then 3.30 in the morning rolls around and you're pulling the biggest call of your life. So, when you're busy, you can keep that mental resilience. You're just, you're on. Like, you're sharp and you're on. But when you watched, um, I should say that. When you, <laughs> when you haven't done as much all day. We'll say uh, it's hard to keep that, you know, like that sharpness. Yeah, well, you're pretty much sitting on a chair with your back facing a cliff, waiting for somebody to push you off. But they're yeah. not going to tell you when now. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like it's kind of the equivalent. I, maybe this is a terrible analogy because I'm just coming up with it now. But it's kind of the equivalent to like when I was working on ground. And Saskatchewan Air Ambulance is busy. They fly a lot. You're always on that racetrack. You're always going. You're always giving her. Literally, in an ambulance, you're giving her. <laughs> Which is, I mean, any paramedic says that they don't like driving fast is full of it. Everyone, <laughs> everyone loves to drive a laser sirens. And that never gets tiring. I don't Maybe in bad weather and icy conditions, that's not fun. But like, so you're always giving her. But at stars, you're just waiting to be brought in. Premium. Toss you right in. Come on. <laughs> You're just sitting on the sidelines, getting, you know, bring, no me, warm in, bring up. me in. Nothing. So that was challenging. But, you know, in the sense, it's good. It's healthy because it brings longevity. I mean, when you go that hard, that, uh, that builds up over time. Guys wear out. You're, you know, your body's like a car. You can only go hard for so long. Drive your car like oh. it's a rented vehicle. It's going <laughs> to give out. <laughs> yeah. How have you found... Being able to respond to a call now compared to when you first started at Stars, I think uh, so. It's an experience-based job, and with the more experience you have, the easier it gets. So whether that be mentally preparing, 
understanding the process of what's going to happen on that call. I mean, it got easier over time. You, you know, you get your call, you hear what, you get some equipment, get ready, you jump in a helicopter. You are used to running all these infusions. You're used to having someone on a ventilator. Like these are what we're doing almost every day on every call. But when you start out and you're not used to giving certain medications, you're not used to putting someone on a ventilator. You're not used to landing in the middle of a highway. There was a lot more process or thought process put into it where I don't want to say it's second nature by any means, but it just got easier over time. When you're first day of being a paramedic, you're just like, Oh my God, <laughs> like everyone's going to be going in cardiac arrest and like, Oh, like, how many stabbings am I going to go do today? And then you just realize that like, that doesn't happen on a regular basis. And like you get used to the day to day calls and you roll with it. Literally, because you're in an ambulance with wheels. <laughs> <I'm stretching. laughs> and uh, so, it's, you know, like any other job in any other field that's experience-based, the more experience you get, the easier it gets. There's just those handful of calls that are you, uh, you can't really prepare for. You do your best in training. You do your best to get ready for it. But it's just that, you know, I mean, James Smith. You know, like how do you prepare for that? You can't. You do your best. And we walked into that with the best training we possibly I could have. I don't 100% know what that is yet. James Smith? Yeah. So that's when that mass stabbing happened with the two brothers. And the one brother ended up killing the other brother. And there was, I believe, in total, including one of the brothers, uh, 11 deaths. And there was 16 injured um, in total and then it turned into a massive manhunt so it was it was a pretty big deal but we fl uh, we flew into that we we were first responding into that and how do you prepare to go into a community that uh, has had multiple home invasions where you know multiple people have been murdered and the thing in the first responder world is you don't necessarily, know what you're walking into. So the information we were provided was there was a number of people killed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's accurate information. You don't know what accurate information you're dealing with until you land on scene. But when it's a whole community, you know, like we weren't at each individual uh, crime scene. We were at one location and that was a triage situation. So People came to us. Um, but basically what I'm saying is you can't, it's hard to prepare for an event like that. You just can't. Humbled, you know, the bus crash. How do you, how do you prepare for that? You do your best, but you can't, you know. Where are you getting that information from on the call that there's four people killed? Uh, so the information that we are given is what the 911 operators are given when they receive the 911 call. Oh, from a caller yeah. telling you the situation and yeah. they transmit that information to you. Yeah. Okay. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. So what is a triage situation? So a triage situation um, is basically when more, when the patients overwhelm the responding crews. So when you have more patients and you do resources to transport and manage them. So a simple car accident on the highway 
can lead to a triage situation. So in that case, you're, you are deciding who needs to be transported first and by what potentially what modality, whether that be like a basic life support ambulance crew, advanced life support ambulance crew by helicopter. So you're basically walking around, you're deciding, you're looking at people's injuries, deciding how sick they were. Uh, so green would be like a walking wounded. So people that are walking around that have minor injuries. That would be like labeled green. It's done by color. And then you have yellow. So needs to go to the hospital, but they're, they're not in a critical state. Uh, then you have red. So someone that is very, very sick, that is cr deemed critical, um, that's going to require a lot of treatments. And then you have black and black is uh, someone that has passed away and succumbed to their injuries or someone that has injuries that are going to lead to dying, essentially. They're going to succumb to their injuries. So when you're in a situation where you have more patients than resources, because that's essentially what it is, uh, you may have to make a decision that you aren't going to provide care to someone that is so critically ill or injured that you're not going to provide care for them because you're going to allocate that care to someone else that will have a good outcome. Or a better chance of a good outcome. Or a better chance. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Because you, you don't want to tie up your resources with someone that's potentially going to pass away or die with yeah, you're looking someone at that could have a, you know, a better outcome or a good outcome or whatever. Who's making this decision on site? Uh, so usually it's a responding EMS crew. Uh, so paramedics. How many of these calls have you had to make? Oh man, like, uh, I've been on quite a few of them. Um, but it's, that's not just channeled straight to stars. That's like, that's an, that any paramedic has done the exact same thing in one form or another. Like I said, car accidents lead to triage situations. So you, everyone's heard of the humble bus accident. You know, there was just that big accident out in Manitoba. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a big accident on the Icefields Parkway. Um, and then there was James Smith. These are all major events. But on a regular basis, uh, there's accidents on the highway where there's only one ambulance in town or two ambulances in these small communities. And these guys are responding out and there will be, we'll just say six people involved in this car accident. Well, those EMS crews are triaging that accident. So everyone hears about the big events, but the small events happen on a regular basis and all paramedics will have triage stories. Especially paramedics that work in smaller communities. In the city, and I did most of my career in the city, so I started my career in Kamsak, where I did summer relief, which is right on the Manitoba border. Um, and then I went to Onion Lake for two years, and then I ended up in the city in 2005. And then I worked until 2021, I think, or 2020, is when I left the city to go to Stars full-time. But in the city, we're, you know, the guys were real fortunate. There's lots of crews. Like... When people are stuck in the hallway, if there's a big event, they'll do their best to clear ambulances to respond. Well, if you have 
eight ambulances, 10 ambulances. I don't even know how many ambulances are working in the city anymore. But there's, there's quite a number of ambulances that work in the city. Well, that, that's a lot of resources that can be allocated to a car accident. But when you work in a community that only has one ambulance, uh, you're it. And there's a lot of services up north who there's no one even close to come help them. You, you're it. Like those guys, those guys have it rough. Those guys got some good stories. And these are stories that will never make the news. Maybe a small portion, bad car accident, four but people involved. They're making these calls. But like, yeah. On a regular basis. And a lot of those guys are young. You know, they're doing their first job. They're trying to get experience. As a first job making that decision? Yeah. So, and that's the expectation. Uh, you signed up to be a paramedic. This is, you know, like it's your first day. This is the standard. You are expected to be able to respond to these accidents and manage them. It's easier said than done. Don't get me wrong. But that's why a lot of these smaller communities have younger medics working there and they're dealing with all these accidents on a regular basis. I wouldn't say regular basis, uh, which also makes it tough when you're not doing it on a regular basis like we were talking about. But they, they respond to these accidents. They're triaging these patients. And, you know, like, Stars gets a lot of glory. Um, and air ambulance kind of falls, falls into this, but we're showing up late because... We have to fly there. So what, like, so Saskatchewan Air Ambulance will go way up to Wollstone Lake, we'll say. Well, I think that, uh, I'm going to get bugged for not knowing this, but I think that's a two-hour flight. Like for us to go to Pass Meadow is an hour. So a call comes in, we hear about it, but it's going to be an hour before we show up. Oh, that's what so, you mean. Yeah. What are you doing when you're on that call and you're in transport? A lot of times uh, we're prepping equipment. So if we think so, we carry four units of blood and blood product. So we'll be prepping lines to give blood. If it sounds like someone has a head injury or there's a potential that we'll have to put a breathing tube in someone or intubate, we are prepping the airway equipment. Uh, we're prepping the ventilator. Like, cause you, you know, you're hooking up the vent circuit or that tube that comes off the ventilator and onto the ET tube. Well, you gotta, you gotta prep it. You gotta check it. You gotta put all your settings in medications. You're drawing up medications. Uh, you're looking at, if it's a unique circumstance, you're looking at guidelines and even the, the stuff that we do on a regular basis, like managing a head injury, managing, we'll say different drug dosages. We're always reviewing it. And in some case, writing it down, because once the stress hits, it, it's harder to look stuff up when, you f you, when, when you're under duress than it is when you're kind of just drinking a ball of water, flying out somewhere for an hour. It's better to always walk into somewhere prepared or than over-prepared. And I, I'm going to murder this, but like, <laughs> I, isn't it uh, Mike Tyson? Who said, once you get punched in the nose, your plans go out the window? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better to have a plan to go out the window than no plan at all. Because what are you going to do with, you know, with no plan? Yeah, well, hope isn't a great strategy. Hope is, uh, yeah, I think, man, hope is false. Like, you can't hope it's going to go well. You prepare for it to go well. But that goes back into what I was saying earlier. How do you manage stress? Well, I think about, you know, our training and it's like a game that you're preparing for. You've prepared for this big day 
you've put in the training, your equipment's ready to go and you're ready to go. That's part of the reason for getting everything ready. So instead of taking that time to get all that stuff ready when you're on scene or in a hospital, it's already ready to go. So we can walk in and, and do a pretty invasive procedure and be out of there in a timely fashion because on the way out, we've prepped it all. We've discussed roles. We've discussed the game plan prior to showing up. And that's why when you walk into those chaotic situations, you're already switched on. So you've got the physical side where you're getting all your equipment ready. How are you mentally amping yourself up to do this? You know, the, the mental preparation just goes back into, you know, you just, you, you, you self-reflect on everything you've gone through to get there and you know you're ready. Oh, so you do a lot of self-affirmation in your head then? Yep. That positive self-talk going on? Yeah. Oh. I can only speak for myself. I don't know about the rest of my coworker. Like, but like, <laughs> Some uh, guy. That's the way I do it. You know, like uh, uh, sometimes placing a breathing tube can be tricky. Like the other day, that was tricky. We put a surgical airway in. You just think of all that time you've prepped to manage airways. You think of all the intubations you've done. You mentally map out someone's anatomy to lead you in place that breathing tube in the right spot. These are all things that are going through your head. Like you are spot on and you are ready for this and you've prepared for this. And this is where you want to be. You don't want to be anywhere else, like in your job. At least I, I don't. Like I said, this is only, I can only speak for myself. I don't know if my coworkers do this, but like, this is what I want to do my whole life. And this is exactly where I want to be. These are the calls I want to go on. Um, so you're constantly reminding yourself of that too. Yeah. And it's like anything, you know, like, yeah. what's your know. favorite piece of gear? Oh, so we started carrying an ultrasound, uh, a couple of years ago, probably, I think in 20, I'm more than a couple of years. I'm old. 2016, <laughs> <laughs> we started carrying ultrasound in the helicopter and I've really deep dived, uh, utilizing an ultrasound in our environment. So there's different types of scans you can do. So, uh, you're looking at someone's lungs. You're looking to see if someone has bleeding in their stomach. You're looking at someone's heart, but I've, the basic level is Eddie one core, which that's just the label of uh, the basic ultrasound. That's what most people are trained to. And then I've upgraded my training to uh, Eddie two recess scans. And what basically all that means is that I'm utilizing the ultrasound images that I'm producing to figure out what type of shock state someone's in or how they're how my treatment is helping, whether it is helping or if it's not. I can tell through looking at, at someone's heart and lungs whether they need more IV fluids or is that actually going to be harmful? Do they need medication to make the heart squeeze a little bit more? Are they being overloaded where their lungs are now wet? Uh, is the ventilator working? Is the tube too deep? Or if it's too deep, then you're only oxygenating, ventilating one lung. Are they bleeding in their stomach? Do they need blood products to replace it before their vital signs even will show that they have internal bleeding? I, you know, we can get imaging on the side of the highway. You're getting real time assessment. Real time assessment. It's just awesome. It's unbelievable. That's a phenomenal tool. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's a game changer in my mind. I, I'd say that's probably one of my favorite pieces of equipment. Yeah. We, yeah. We, I would carry a lot of cool stuff. Like, uh, like to facilitate an intubation, we have a video laryngoscope, which is becoming more common. But the one we have, it's like, it has like a, a, like a, looks like a box with a screen. It is a small box with a screen on it. So then at the end of the blades that we put in someone's mouth to put the breathing tube in, it's a camera. So instead of going what's called a direct intubation of trying to look in someone's mouth and see the vocal cords where you're going to put the breathing tube or the epiglass, you actually can see it on the screen. So it really facilitates difficult intubations where there's not a lot of room in someone's mouth when someone's mouth is full of chiclets and blood or vomit. Um, you know, like these intubations or these times that we're putting a breathing tube in, these aren't, it's not an elective intubation. You know, it's not like, oh, I got appendicitis. I, I'm at five o'clock, I'm going to go into the OR so I can't eat. It's like, oh, I'm going to drink a 24 beer and then eat some nachos and then get on head on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not so these situation. are all, you know, most <laughs> people nowadays, especially in North America, um, you know, their body habitus isn't necessarily all that healthy. So they're, they're bigger dudes or ladies, and it can make it challenging to put a breathing tube in. So by utilizing this video laryngoscope, man, it just makes our job so much easier. Well, you easier. know when you hit it properly then, and it's Absolutely. easier you to get there. You see it go through. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so someone has a small mouth, not a problem. I got a video. Yeah. What's that word you said? Chicklets in the mouth? Your teeth. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you see teeth knocked out in their mouth still? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I, and you can think of any traumatic injury and EMS crews will run into it. How desensitized are you to seeing all of this now? Do you, I think you, you got to be desensitized a little bit. And that leads with a career of being in a pre-hospital field. Otherwise, you won't be able to do the job. What's and the so, worst bodily fluid that you don't want to handle? Poop. What's the highest? What's the easiest one? Blood. Probably. Yeah, how about your, not bad. How about your coworkers? Anybody? Everyone's got their own thing. Really? Yeah. You know anybody? I'm pretty poop? sure like, with most paramedics, it's, it's fecal matter. I don't like that. You ever met anybody where fecal matter's at the top? Nurses are weird. <laughs> Just joking. That was, although they seem to handle it better than paramedics. They, they're, they're strong-willed. Yeah. The, all right. Gotcha. And the poop. <laughs> all right. You're in a remote location with your family. You're going on a hike. There's not going to be cell service. What do you pack in your first aid kit? Oh, good question. You know, I don't even know if this is, I think uh, tourniquets are pretty important and they've been proven uh, through, you know, the conflicts in Afghanistan and, and Iraq um, of what difference they can make. And from what I've seen on the job of someone that has tried to manage a, you know, an arterial bleed with a shoelace, a, a belt, um, and people are just passing away because you can't stop the bleeding. The only thing that can stop that type of bleeding uh, is an actual combat tourniquet. So I think that's really important. 
to carry in your first aid kit nowadays, actually, you know, like your basic bandaging, but really like, I, I guess that'd probably be the number one unexpected. That's easy to carry. You can have those everywhere. Yeah. So, Highest return on the lowest investment too. Absolutely. Not a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah, you, you need don't. it. You need it now. When you need it, you need it now. And I've seen too many people pass away from injuries that were potentially the injuries themselves were unavoidable, but the bleeding could have been managed by someone who had zero training at all. Cause you don't need any training to put on a turnkey. Yes. You, it's probably a good idea. To, you got to understand how it works, but it's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, I, totally. You put it all on an arm, you turn it around until the blood stops coming out and you lock it down. Yeah. Like it's not right. The time on their forehead or right. The time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like it it's on. not rocket science, but it'll <laughs> save someone's life. <laughs> You know, so like, top dog is the tourniquet. Yeah. And then what, what do we, what's second? In my own kit? Oh, I don't know, man. I just got pretty much a standard one with some tourniquets. Um, hemostatic dressing is probably another one that most people don't think. Kind of goes along with the tourniquet. So what's a hemostatic dressing? Uh, it's like, um, it comes like, it used to be like a powdered form that they put in, like, so this came out of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then it's crossed over just like turkeys have into, um, into pri- not private, but well, civilians uh, can civilian, use it now. the civilian world. And it's, um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a powder form. And what it does is it has a chemical reaction to stop bleeding. <coughs> And oh, inc- you're talking about clot increase. Oh, the brand name would be Quick Clot. That'd be one. Okay, that's what you're talking. So that's yeah. a hemostatic dressing. Yep. Okay, so that's second. Yeah. And what's something for maybe comfort? Advil? Ad. <laughs> <laughs> no. How come Advil over the others? No, I. You know, like I said, it was like <laughs> easiest ones: hemostatic dressings, tourniquet. Your standard, which is like Abdel pads and like four by fours with cling to wrap it all down tight, tight. I mean, like I don't carry super fancy stuff in my first aid kit. Like I don't have advanced airway management stuff in my, in my own personal first aid kit. I'd say the other thing, if you're going hiking is like a spot device or a device where you can get help because that's what you really need. Someone that can come get you. Yeah, GPS beacon or something. Yep. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that's top on the list. Yeah, that should actually be number one. <laughs> <laughs> way to way to call for help. Yeah. Yeah. And then the rest. Yeah. How has your safety view changed in your day-to-day life? I think it's made me more hypervigilant when I'm driving on the highway. Uh just because so many accidents happen. Uh, you know, someone's driving down the road and someone blows a stop sign and a lot of accidents happen that way, you know? So when you're driving down the highway and all these people are, my, it drives my wife nuts actually because I'm always looking around and like, you know, hitting the gas and, and maybe hitting it harder or slowing down. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's called situational awareness. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna call it pedal masturbating. <laughs> but uh, but uh, being, you know, being aware of people that are potentially going to cross me and I don't have any trust in anyone. So <laughs> I, I'm just always kind of always a little, be a little bit switched on. Okay. So you're using that basic driver training to the fullest extent. Oh yeah. I don't trust anyone. 
it'd be nice to switch that off. Uh, but too many accidents happen that way. You can't trust other people that they see that stop sign. People don't always have to be intoxicated to cause an accident. Inattentive driving, man. Looking down at their phone. It's actually funny. Like, so I had an old Subaru Forester. Loved it. But it was like a legit, I, I want to say a legit car, but like, you know, like you actually had to put the key in and like there was no screens. And I I had a tape deck in it that I plugged my, my phone into with a tape to run it. But we just got a van. We upgraded from my Forester, got a van and it's got this Honda Odyssey. Love it. But it's got a big screen on it. And I find myself actually changing stuff on the screen by looking at the screen. And it's, so you can be doing something as harmless as changing your radio station on your screen in your car, your big screen. You know, you know what I mean? And all it takes is that half second of inattentiveness. All it takes is because you're looking down at that screen. Yeah. And I wouldn't say I've had close calls, but I'm more aware that I'm not paying attention than I ever was in my old car. That it could have been a close call. Good. If could the easily situation to, aligned uh, in the All it right takes way. is someone to step out in the middle of the street, man. You know? Yeah. That's it. So it's funny. In kind of. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I, at least I'm aware of it. And you know when to check yourself where, okay, that yeah. was dangerous. I shouldn't have even tapped but that button. How many people are playing with their screens? Like, not just their phone screens, but like in their vehicle. You know, like they feel safe because their phone's connected to the car. They're not going to get a ticket because they haven't touched the phone. But, you know, like all cars now are the same way. They come with screens that, you know, you can change a song, you can change the GPS, all this stuff. Yeah. So when well, you've seen the full aftermath. Just takes one second. Is it? So that hypervigilance, how does your wife balance you out? Uh, she makes comments about my pill masturbation. <laughs> that, I mean, I, I'm not good with. Uh, yeah, I try to keep it to myself. I usually don't talk too much about that, you know. Like, so you don't. I don't, call, I don't need don't, to stress her out as well. So you don't call things out as you see them. Yeah, I, I used to joke around when we were driving. You know, like. Well, they probably still do it when they're driving lights and sirens to the city. You come up to the intersection, you stop, and you're in an ambulance on my own car. But you're in an ambulance, you come up to the intersection. The driver is supposed to be focusing on driving, and the, the navigator or person sitting in the passenger seat who's getting the driver from point A to point B when they come up to the intersection, it's their job to look to see if it's clear. But you can't say clear. You have to yell, clear! <laughs> <laughs> so I used to do that with her. She didn't appreciate it. Was that on purpose? Well, or was, it, just or like, was it? It's kind autopilot. of fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so when you turn on the lights and sirens, that the driver is only supposed to drive, and the navigator is watching for everything else. Yeah. There. So I guess it's kind of like the. I was gonna say a rally the, like a line in a cheetah. You know, like a cheetah is hyper focused, like going super fast. And the lion's looking for its prey everywhere. So like, you know, you use that analogy, like when you're driving, like you're hyper-focused on driving, you're hyper-focused on people like ahead of you, like whether they're going to go in your lane or not. Yep. Totally. Or probably just stop more yeah. likely than not, right when you least expect them to, where the guy is navigating would be, have more of a situational awareness of what's going around 
who's coming up when you're coming up to the intersection. Is it clear or not? Oh, so full 360? As best you can, like in a vehicle. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. How many close calls have you had when you're crossing an intersection with the sirens on? You know, I guess I was fortunate, not overly a ton. Actually, none that really come to mind. I've seen accidents happen where people are trying to avoid me and not because I was driving crazy. They were just going right and nothing was going to stop them, including the vehicle that was right there. Oh, Um, they were trying to get out of your way. So they hit a vehicle. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But hey, if you don't stop, if an emergency vehicle does not stop at every intersection when it's red, even when their lights are going, that's asking to get an accident because... If you operate in an ambulance in the manner that you don't trust anyone and everyone's going to pull up in front of you and everyone's going to stop right in front of you and you give yourself that room to react to it, um, yeah, it'll avoid accidents. Yeah, if you don't pre- do that, you're good prepped luck. for that worst case scenario for yeah. that unexpected to come up. Yeah, good luck. It's uh, but not everyone drives that way. Well, you do. I do. <laughs> Defensive driving is pretty critical yeah. in your line of work. Well, it's just like, I think some guys, though, when they start the job, they're young and they get told they can speed. And the rules have probably completely changed since I was in the ambulance, but uh, they give her as fast as they can. What? <laughs> and they always have the fortitude to think ahead. So the lights are on. How fast are you allowed to go? I believe it's... 30 over the speed limit, which is more enforced now because of GPS. Uh, But when I started my career, let's just take this time traveling. When I started my career, there was no such thing as GPS. We had map books. So that also meant there was no GPS in the vehicle, which was tracking us. So you, it's not that you could do what you wanted, but (laughs) got away with a lot more. Especially on the highways. Like I could tell you that I could tell you that ambulances uh, at the time I was driving them get governed out at 150. <laughs> which is kind of funny if you think about it because it's a big box vehicle that should never be going 150, but the suspension isn't designed for that. I also don't buy avatar. it. So <laughs> Nowadays, you can never get away with that, though. I think, actually, uh, it actually gets flagged in their, like, at least at Medivy, it would get flagged in their dispatch center when they're going over a certain speed limit. They might get some they, repercussions for that. Oh, yeah, they'll tracked. get in trouble, for sure. Or Absolutely. have to explain what was going on. Yeah, I'm not sure how you explain that one, but <laughs> it's going on 50 because it's flat. <laughs> Road was straight. <laughs> I don't know. How I, mean, much, I don't think you can. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you know of what goes on in the dispatch center when they receive a call? Uh, so you're only given the information that they are provided. Uh, you don't, it's not that it's two different entities, but it kind of is. Like, so someone calls 911. They say, hey, there's been a car accident with three people. And then they have a, the dispatchers will have a whole list of questions to go through. So depending on what answer they get, it's all forwarded on to you. That's all you know. That's it. You can ask for updates, but that's not necessarily, they're not necessarily able to provide that. Or a lot of times, this is a, this is a, it's probably common everywhere, but we'll say Saskatchewan, is that vehicles in the ditch. 
someone drives by. They don't stop. They don't stop to see if someone's in the vehicle. They just saw a vehicle in the ditch, even though it's, you know, super icy or whatever the case may be. There's no damage to the vehicle. It looks like they just slid off the road. So they instead of stopping to see if someone needs assistance, they just phone 911. Well, there's no, there's none. There, there's no information then. And the problem is, is then you kind of treat worst case scenario. Or another common city call, but it's probably common everywhere, is like someone will be sleeping. Uh, you know, like uh, someone in my head, too much beverages will just say downtown in the park and they're sleeping and someone will see them. Instead of seeing if they're all right, they'll call it in as someone unconscious. So now the you know, ambulance is going, the fire truck's going, everyone's going because someone got called in as being unconscious, but they're just sleeping. So in that case too, there's no information because no one bothered to see if they're all right. But in their defense, in that situation, it's not always a good idea to walk up to someone that's sleeping somewhere where they shouldn't be sleeping because they might wake up not happy and that could end up in a violent situation. So just don't, don't do it. Call 911. <laughs> yeah. But we're just not offered a lot of information. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you don't want to approach them, but at the same time, you're kind of stuck between those two points. Do I call the get help for this individual? Do I leave it alone? And kind of both decisions, there's there's yeah. a trade-off. Yeah, absolutely. And if you feel that someone needs help, just call. Uh, you'll never regret calling to get someone help. But um, I guess the only thing I'm, I'm saying is the responding crews don't have a lot of information to go off of. Oh, yeah. So you've been in this industry for 21 years now. What's the biggest lesson you've learned? Um, life is precious. Uh, you know, you might have a lot going on in your life, but it could rapidly change really fast in the blink of an eye. And you don't know when that's coming. Do you follow stoicism at all? No. No? Okay. I well, actually, no, I can't say that. Tell me what it is. And I'm probably going to butcher this. I apologize because I'm trying to get into it, but it's it's kind of dry. But there's a lot of points to it that I, I think are valid. And one of them is like memento mori. So there's uh, there's this author, uh, Ryan Holiday, who's he's really gone and he's wrote a number of books based on Marcus Aurelius and you know all these ancient philosophers and kind of putting their philosophy back out there. But... One of the sayings in Stoicism is momentum morie. And what that means is um, you're going to die. That's, that's Latin. That's literally the translation. And the meaning behind that is it's not to be too dark. It's the fact that we're all dying. You just don't know when. And so you should live your life in a way that if tomorrow you die, or tonight, worst case scenario, we'll say, or whenever, you live your life in a way that you won't have regrets and you don't hold back. And that's the reality. You don't know when you're going to have a life-altering accident. You don't know when you're going to have a life-altering 
diagnosis. You don't know when someone in your family, you know, you got kids, I got kids, they're healthy now. And all it takes is one step out onto the road. That's it. And it happens more than you think. That's kind of the, the, I guess the one big downside to my job is I see it all the time. So it's like when you're driving down the highway, how many major car accidents are there every day in Saskatchewan? Nah, maybe one, we'll say, like major. Um, but in my mind, it happens all the time. So when I'm driving to Edmonton and someone comes up on the side of the road, I'm just in my mind, they're not going to stop. But it's not as common as I guess you'd think. But to circle back to it, it's like what I learned in this job, momentum mori. You got to you got to live life and do it in a manner that you won't have regrets. You don't do something that you're going to regret saying to someone. Don't dwell on the negatives of maybe an interaction with a friend, coworker, a stranger, uh, because life's too short for that. Yeah. Try to move on when you can move on. Just move on. Yeah. It's not worth it because when you're having a stroke and you're in your wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. You know when what your priorities are then. That's though. your priority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brett, is there anything I haven't asked you? I don't think so. That got real deep. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, we'll close it out then.